In the early 1900s, it was relatively easy to gain admission to Harvard if you could afford to pay tuition and if you were a WASP, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man. All you had to do was be proficient in Latin and pass a series of entrance exams. These entrance exams were not particularly difficult. A prospective student could take it over and over until he passed. If he didn't pass, he could still be admitted through connections to faculty. In fact, in 1907, 55% of Harvard's admitted students had failed the entrance exams. Harvard at this time also boasted the highest number of undergraduate enrollees of any university in America and England, priding itself on the sheer size of its student population. Yet the Harvard we know today has one of the lowest acceptance rates of any college. In 2021, the number of applicants increased by 42% from the previous year, totaling to more than 57,000 applications. Consequently, Harvard's acceptance rate hit a record low of 3.43%. How did we get here? Why did college admissions get more and more exclusionary over time? And what was the role of anti-Semitism in that process? Today, we're joined by Harvard professor Zachary Nowak, who teaches the popular class Introduction to Harvard History, Beyond the Three Lies. From the Harvard Crimson, this is A Legacy Revealed. So if you wanted to go to Harvard in the very first class, which arrived in the late summer of 1638, you basically had to be able to pay. <laughs> that was pretty much it. But you also had to come to a family that could lose your labor for four years. And so that already, that wasn't everybody. The requirements later on when they get formalized are interesting because you have to be able to translate English into Latin at a pretty low level and Latin into English and have some knowledge of Greek, however basic. At a certain point, they add in a little bit of STEM knowledge, but again, really basic stuff, really basic math. Because in the 17th century, there aren't many schools in New England. So you really can't say like, oh, you have to have an A average because there weren't schools. A lot of Harvard students up until even the early 1800s get prepared for Harvard. And that means either they go to one of these academies, like Dummer Academy or Andover Academy that are sort of private, sort of semi-public, and they get prepared for Harvard. Students also went to preparatory schools like the Boston or Roxbury Latin School. If there were no schools nearby, some students would be taught by local ministers who were often Harvard graduates themselves. If you look at these early admissions documents, even up until like the end of the 1700s, it's pretty much the same. You have to know some Latin, be able to translate into it and out of it, and a little bit of Greek. You have to put down a caution, like a deposit for one semester's bond. And towards the end of the 1700s, they put in this thing about good moral character, whatever that means. The students who go to Harvard have to pass this admissions test. And that is basically, there's a certain day where you show up in Cambridge. So the president, the professors, and some of the tutors, who are mostly Harvard graduates, examine you. You know, they give you like an oral exam. There might be a written part. And it's pretty much Latin and Greek. Can you pay the tuition? Great. See you in late August. Some of the students get 
sent away and they say, no, not many, because Harvard's really pretty cash strapped. They also accept tuition in nature. And so you don't have to pay necessarily money. You can give them barley or pigs or honey. There are some early scholarships, but not many. From the late 1600s on, it's very much an elite institution, but there's always people from the middle class. Oftentimes, New England towns will all sort of get together and sponsor a student. The idea is that students are going to come back to that town and be sort of a notable person and help other students go to Harvard. This system of admissions stays in place until Charles William Eliot becomes president of Harvard in 1869. Eliot really transforms Harvard from a prestigious but very regional college in New England to being a national research university. He wants to have a written exam. He really wants to de-emphasize Latin and Greek. He finally gets that removed as a requirement. The exams are very much a lot closer to what the SAT looks like. Some of them are math questions that I clearly would not have gone to Harvard in the 1880s because I would never be able to finish these math questions. <laughs> it's like something about it, the relative gravity of a cork and a guy, his head is made of cork and when does he float and how far are the water? Oh, I never, ever do it. But remember, there's a relationship, especially towards the end of the 1800s with these prep schools that have sprung up in New England, like Phillips Andover, Phillips Exeter, Groton, and Harvard. And so the people at those schools, the teachers all went to Harvard and the boys are going to go to Harvard. And so Harvard and these schools are totally in like a dialectic about what they're teaching in the high school and what they're going to teach at Harvard. So they're totally teaching to the test, the test being the entrance exam to Harvard. Elliot democratizes this. He wants to have students from all over the U.S. And so they start doing the Harvard exam, not just in Cambridge, but they do it in San Francisco. They do it in Boston. They do it here. They do it there. And it's standardized. And then he is really crucial to the development of the college board. This idea of having one standardized test, I think that multiplies by five, the number of places across the United States where you can apply and take the test. And then it's not just for Harvard, it's for other schools too. He really did a lot to broaden the ability at least to take the admissions test. Certain people have a huge advantage, but it's still possible for other people to do that. So this system is also more or less what's going on at Princeton, Yale, and Columbia. So when did the college application process start looking like the one we know today? At the end of the 1800s, there's a huge emigration from Central Europe of Central European and Eastern European Jewish people. And a lot of them settle in Lower Manhattan. And it's actually not that far on the subway from Lower Manhattan to Upper Manhattan, where Columbia is. And so these smart, hardworking young Jewish men, because Columbia is still all men, like the other ones, they start going up to Columbia and taking the test. And guess what? They're getting in at ever higher rates. And their parents are scraping together money or they're getting small scholarships. Sometimes their religious community supports them financially to go to Columbia. And the rate of Jewish students at Columbia starts going up. And it gets to a point where a lot of blue blood New York families are saying, well, I don't want my kid to go to school with a bunch of Jews. There's this intense anti-Semitism you know, we think of like Nazi Germany as anti-Semitic. New York in the 1920s, wow. And it's open and it's blended into this eugenics theory, which is just another variant of white supremacy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? There's a lot of eugenics theory going around in the late 1800s. I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify, but you have this a huge explosion of immigration to the United States, first from Ireland, which 
Anglo Americans definitely see as an inferior race. They're not white at all. There's no consideration of Irish as being white. That category broadens very slowly in the United States. But then you get this huge flux of immigrants in the last three decades of the 19th century from Southern Europe. So a lot of Catholics and poor, a lot of Central and Eastern European Jewish people, another religion. And it's in the Anglo-Americans start to worry that they're going to get outbred. The Immigration Restriction League in 1894 was founded by three Harvard graduates. Its vice president was Abbott Lawrence Lowell, who would later become president of Harvard in 1909. So there's this huge fight to restrict immigration. you got to clamp down. And finally, in 1926, they passed legislation that they wanted. you got to slow down immigration from undesirable countries, undesirable races. But also, if people are already here, you got to try to get them to not reproduce. So Jews are definitely not white people in this theory. In any event, the percentage starts to rise at, at Columbia. And so all these blue blood families are sending their kids now, instead of to Columbia, to Princeton, to Harvard, to Yale. This works out for Harvard for a while. But then what happens? There's also Jewish families moving to Boston. The number starts to rise also at Harvard, the percentage of Jewish students. The worry on the part of Lowell and his counterparts at Princeton and Yale is that the same thing is going to happen to them. At a certain point, you're going to have a critical mass of Jewish students, they consider low class. There's sort of two classifications. The German Jewish students who are from middle class, upper middle class families, those Jewish students are okay. That's an okay class of Jews. Still need to be a small number, but they're fine. But the Eastern European Jewish students, no, no, we don't want those. That's gonna scare away all the blue bloods who are paying full tuition. And we have to be careful about that. And so the modern American college admission system is born. Lowell announces very openly that he's going to limit the number of Jewish students. He's such an anti-Semite and such a bigot and such a jackass and so sure of himself. He's actually shocked when he announces this. He's going to limit the number of Jewish students and a bunch of the alumni get pissed off. Not just the Jewish alumni. The faculty doesn't like it. A majority of the faculty is like, this is crazy because they've been teaching Jewish students. And guess what? They're really hardworking and smart. That's the kind of student you want in your class if you're a non-super anti-Semitic professor, of which there were plenty at Harvard anyway. And so the faculty's against it, the alumni's against it, a lot of newspapers come out against this, and Lowell just plows right ahead. He, for two years, fights this like guerrilla war with not only with the alumni, with the faculty, with the overseers. This is like one of the two boards that runs Harvard. He's bound and determined to reduce the percentage of Jewish students. Torpedoes be damned. And he wins. There was no limit until Lowell. There was no limit on the number of students at Harvard. It had steadily grown. You know, before the Civil War, it's like in a class, there might be 60, 70 students. After the Civil War, it gets really big. From the 1870s to 1910, it goes from like 140 students per class to being like 450. It's big. And a lot of those students don't have last names that are English. So Lowell is upset about this, and he puts in the limit of students. The, the whole limit of number of students at, at Harvard College is a, a relic of this anti-Semitic policy. He puts in the limit, and then even he's smart enough to know that he can't just ask students, are you Jewish? And if they say yes, they don't get it. It's got to be slightly more sophisticated and slightly more subtle than that. And so there's a meeting between the deans of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, 
And what happens at this meeting? They work out a system that all three schools are now going to use. So instead of a relatively objective system like an exam, obviously, you know, we know now that exams like the SATs are inflected culturally. So certain people are going to do better. Some students, when they see, you know, which of these following words shouldn't be in this category and they see the word yacht, they're like, what the hell is a yacht? You know, so we know that we know that that sort of test is not perfectly objective. That said, it's a much more objective system than what these college administrators dream up. Basically, the goal is make admissions more opaque. Make the criteria on which admissions is based more opaque to allow them the flexibility to exclude students who objectively should be admitted immediately because they're really, really good students. We want to sort of pretend it's based on some very vague definition of character and fit. Are you right for Harvard? Would you fit in here? Would you be good for the school? And the real goal is to try to assess how sure they are that certain students are Jewish. They have a four-part scale of how certain they are a kid is Jewish. How do they do this? There's still exams, you know, your high school grades, you got to send those in, but now you got to send in letters of recommendation. Okay, so I got a kid in front of me. His name is Zach Nowak. Is he Jewish? Oh, also a photograph. You have to send in a photograph. This lasts until like the 1970s because they're so anti-Semitic and bigoted. They think that they can pick out Jewish students by looking at a picture. So they look at my picture and they're like, hmm, Nowak. Okay, that's a Central European name. Could be a Catholic name, Catholic Christian from Poland or from the Czech Republic. Well, maybe not. Okay, we need to assess Noak. So they look at my letters of recommendation. If there's a letter of recommendation from a rabbi, it's pretty sure that I'm Jewish, right? But let's say the letters of recommendation are just from my teachers at school and they say Zach Noak's a great student. I highly recommend him. He's super hardworking, you know, affable, good kid. You should admit him. Now we got to go in, in the photograph. They're like, eh, not sure. Now we need to go to another check. What's the other check? Personal interview. So I go up to Harvard or maybe I meet an alumnus of Harvard in Manhattan. And the person says, oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I like to play guitar. You know, I like, uh, I like IPAs. Ta-da. Yeah, I go, like going for long walks on the beach, whatever. And they say, oh, that's great. It's great. What do you, um, it's like, what do you do on Saturdays? That's an easy one, right? I go to Temple. So the system is all based on, we need to figure out who's Jewish and exclude them. I mean, some of it. This system also works to exclude working class Catholics or just even like white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that aren't manly enough. So how effective is the system that Lowell and the other university deans create? This system works fantastically. Lowell and the other schools are able to drop the number of Jewish applicants. Like within five years, it, it goes from something like 18% to something like 9%. They cut it in half. And people know what's going on. It's not like this is some mystery that's really difficult to figure out. But they can cloak the exclusion. And yeah, you know, I just not, you're not Harvard material. You know, you're smart. We don't want just smart people. We're looking for the whole person here. You're just, you're just not right. And it allows that to happen. And it's very, very effective. And the absolutely amazing thing to me is I grew up in the same, I mean, I, I sent in an essay. I had a personal interview. 
I had letters of recommendation. I put down that I was on the football team. And I mean, all this stuff that applicants to American schools, at least those who have grown up in the United States, take for granted that that's just how you go to college. My European friends just take a test. And whatever they get in the test determines what university they can go to. That's it. Nobody cares who your parents are or how far you can throw or kick a certain shaped ball or it's not part of it. There's no essay. None of my European friends ever wrote a personal essay. So it's a really different system and it's one that's become sort of naturalized and one that probably today is not as often used to exclude people. But there's also this case with Asian American students. But man, certain parts of it look a lot like the 1920s at Harvard. So it seems like when Elliot was president, he instituted these standardized tests as a way to give more students the chance to apply to Harvard. This was then twisted by the president that came after, Lowell, as a way to exclude Jewish students. I mean, Elliot, too, has goals. And Elliot is still very much a member of the super elite Boston Brahmin class. I think Elliot is smart enough to say, okay, I want to have the best students from every social class. He's also open to African-American students. I think the first international students come to Harvard, really, under Elliot. But his goal especially is you have to have equality of opportunity to avoid having equality of condition, which means it's way better to take the smartest 1% of the working class and bring them to Harvard and basically co-op their energy, make them part of the American elite. The elite should not just be the richest people in America. We got to take, take these smart people from every class and bring them in. Or what's going to happen? Same thing that happens in the uh, Russian empire is people get pissed off because they have no way up at all. And so the smartest people, the working class get together and they overthrow the government. So there's, there's like a pretty real threat of socialism, I think, in the late 1800s. And Elliot wants to make sure that doesn't happen. He wants to co-opt all that radical energy by taking the leaders of the best men from each class and each race and having them go to Harvard. I mean, that's, that sounds really cynical and I think he had higher goals too of this should be a place where anyone can come, not just people who can pay, not just blue bloods. But yeah, the work that he'd done to broaden Harvard's admissions definitely gets twisted. So Judaism obviously isn't a race, but I want to ask you how anti-Semitism sets up the racism and exclusion of different ethnic groups. There's a malleable idea of who should go to Harvard. And that idea changes over time. I mean, we can look at Harvard today and say, okay, it's definitely changed. But core to that idea is certain people are right for Harvard and others aren't. The categories of who aren't right for Harvard changes, but it's the same ideology of the core exclusionary ideology. These people just aren't right, whether it's because of their race, the color of their skin. And people also believe very strongly in the 1920s that race is like a real thing. It's not a social construct in the 1920s, it's a thing. These people that are Jewish, well, it's, it's just a religion, like they could theoretically convert, but actually inherently they're inferior. And, you know, there's a recognition that it's not exactly the same as race, but the idea is the same. They're really not right to rule which means they shouldn't go to Harvard. It also extends to Roman Catholics. I mean, Elliot, who wants to democratize Harvard, he's super anti-Catholic for a long time. At the very end of his presidency, he softens a little bit. But man, he has no toleration for Catholics a bit. But even like 
working class people, that's still, I mean, they can be Anglicans, but you know, if mom is a stay-at-home mom and dad is a plumber, that person just isn't right. Whether or not they're racially right and religiously right, they got checks in both of those boxes, but eh, or radical political ideology. I don't think Harvard's admitting anyone who in their interviews like, yeah, you know, I'm a communist and uh, have sort of anarchist tendencies. I'd like to form a society on campus that eliminates the undergraduate council because it's coercive. And I'll be trying to subvert the president's uh, directives and the faculty as much as I can. Those students aren't getting admitted either, no matter what their racial or religious backgrounds are. When did other students of color, like African-American students, get admitted to the college? There's pretty steadily a tiny number at Harvard that's slowly increasing. But after Martin Luther King is assassinated, there's a big memorial ceremony at Memorial Church. And African-American students have a separate ceremony. And they issue the next, I think it's the next day, what's called the Ford Demands. The April 10th, 1968 issue of The Crimson listed four demands from the Black student body. One, establish a tenure track for a Black professor. Two, establish more courses related to African American studies. Three, recruit more Black professors. Four, admit more Black students so they're proportionate to the nation as a whole. They make these demands, and it's in a moment that Harvard is worried about student revolt. There's this huge push for black studies departments. They still have to fight for decades. And even now, obviously with Cornell West, it's a process, it's not an event. Harvard College spokesperson, Rachel Dane, wrote in an emailed statement, and I quote, the college treats each applicant as an individual and holds an expansive view of excellence. The admissions committee looks at the whole person and considers each applicant's unique background and experiences alongside grades and test scores to find applicants of exceptional ability and character who can help create a campus community that is diverse on multiple dimensions, including on academic and extracurricular interests, race, socioeconomic background, and life experiences, and who can take advantage of all that Harvard offers and contribute to the learning and social environment for their classmates. Factors such as life experiences, overcoming adversity, or specific talents are particularly important in deciding who will be offered admission. It seems to me that the admissions policies that were put in place to exclude Jewish boys, so like the letters of recommendation, the interview, that kind of stuff, it's now being defended in a way to say, oh, this is to get a holistic view of the applicant, especially in light of affirmative action. What do you make of that? I don't doubt that that's part of it. I mean, that that makes sense to me, but I don't know if you need, I don't know, like what pieces do you need of the application as it stands to get that holistic picture. Do you need the personal interview and the essay? I worry that those things that could be used to build a student body that is more representative of general American and even global society, man, it's really easy that it can go the other way. I didn't know anything about unconscious bias five years ago. I worry about the in-person interviews especially. Also because they're being conducted by alums who are not trained in unconscious bias. I'm sure they're all really well-meaning, but it's just easy when you have a system like this that what you get is what came before. You reproduce what you already have. I mean, even interviews for companies, really the questions that we ask, we're trying to see if the person in front of us is like us. And I worry that the same thing happens for admissions interviews for schools. 
So sure, it can be the tool. I mean, I don't know. You can use a knife to carve a turkey and you can use a knife to stab a person. There's a tool and it worries me that it could be used for that, especially because that's what it was built for. It wasn't built to make a more representative, diverse student body. It was built to make a less representative, less diverse student body. Doesn't say it can't change. And especially after you have a major federal lawsuit. This series is hosted by Raquel Coronel Uribe and 6U. It's produced by Lara Dada. Music by Dash Chen and art by Madison Shirazi. Thank you to Professor Zachary Nowak for joining us for this episode. 